Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Good podcastville you found the bystander podcast happy generic time of day to you we're coming to you back in studio 15 with today's guest dennis miller how you doing dennis i'm doing pretty good tim thanks for having me on this is going to be a new experience for me and i'm looking forward to it i think you're going to be a pro you're easy to talk to easy to look at too <laughs> yeah old gray guy with a beard easy to look at um appreciate you uh taking some time out of your day and going on a walk with ruby your dog and me and Acer. Appreciate that. That was nice time to, you know, get to know you a little bit. And uh, it's a pleasure having a walk with you. Well, you know, part of this format was that everybody is doing things on Zoom. And it was nice to make a contact where you just meet somebody, have a conversation, see if it'll work out. It was a fun walk. I enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah. I, the days of doorbell ringing or, or door knocking kind of is dead in politics after uh, COVID, correct? I don't know. I had this one little experience. I put my little flyers out on mailboxes, and I think I told you before, I was trying not to touch a mailbox because I know that. And I was trying to be really careful. And this one mailbox, it was really fancy, so I posted my note onto the fence post right out on the edge of the road. And it's got my name and my phone number on it. And somebody called me and said, oh, totally upset. It's private property. You shouldn't touch it. I should report you. And so I called them back, and I said, Trying to be respectful. I didn't want to walk up to your door, just like you said. I didn't get those kind of flyers with the doorknob hooks. Trying to be really careful and respectful and just trying to be on property and you know, apologize. And they were really nice. But uh, she said, I'm just getting really tired of all those landscaping rocks thrown oh, yeah. with their cart. What's up with that? People, if you don't know what we're talking about, they take a little Ziploc bag, put a business card in there, and then a rock and chuck it on your lawn and say, hey, let me mow your yard. It's a... Guerrilla style of marketing. Uh, yeah, the hardest part for me when I started this was trying to go, I think I said this when I was doing the League of Women Voters. I'm sitting there trying to sign up and go, who's going to vote for me? Who even knows me besides 
hundred kids, parents that I coached for soccer that might be around still or might not be around. So it was hard to find out how to make that happen, especially with COVID going on and there's no face to face in so many things. We're just barely getting out of that now. So, you know, I hope the flyers didn't upset too many people. No. And I appreciate, you know, social distance walking on a trail that we're talking about, you know, environment, uh, what the parks are doing, what kind of land use we're going to have around here. It's nice to get out there and have that conversation. One of the few things that I always looked forward to pre-COVID was, you know, coffee with the mayor or or some people had open hours. And I think Cole Medina was the one that started that. And a, a few of the council people picked up on it. And it was nice to have an opportunity and go have a cup of joe at TNC and sit down with somebody for a few minutes and say, hey, have this concern my concern since I would live by the high school was uh, illuminating the crosswalk at, at the crest where everybody picks up the kids because it was uh, poorly reflective. And when it was rainy or foggy or the sun was shining, right as when kids were going into school at the busiest time and everybody's rushing off to the ferry, it was a kind of a blind little hill and uh, it wasn't designated. And it got done eventually. But I think that had more to, more to do with persistence with the planning commission and saying, "Hey, you know, we've had kids hit, or people, well, people in general, hit on this island. You know, joggers and ladies in crosswalks and stuff, and we've had some issues." No, that's actually really important. I've traveled around the island a lot. You know, when I'm doing small repairs and small work, and I make those intersections all the time going down to the lumber yard or going into town for something. And I always had that same issue, especially around the high school. And I've always, I tell you what I'm disappointed in is that we have a roundabout that's full of plants because I've pulled in there with many times when the kids are leaving school and you have to get almost halfway through it before you see the crosswalk on the other side. Mm -hmm. And it's great to have the plants and great to have that. I just don't know whoever decided that we should have landscaping growing in the middle of an intersection. So. So I understand your point with safety. Yeah. Um, I think we could talk about roundabouts all day. Yeah. Well, no what's, what's your first opinion on the one on Madison? I know the sponsor and shout out to Blue Canary Auto. Great service there. Their business dipped for a long, long time because you couldn't even get into their facility because of that round, roundabout project. And I don't know if they got compensated by the city for their, you know, kind of closed business practice while the, all that construction was going on. And then it was kind of poorly marked at first. I mean, people were just driving right over it, a small hump. And I understand that large trucks need to get through there. But how do you think that project got to be looking the way it was when it first started out? And how do, how do you view it now? I know that's a highly trafficked, trafficked area. Well, I think we always want to make improvements. And, you know, a lot of things on paper look like a good improvement. I mean, I know that from all the years of looking at plans and looking at construction and going, well, that might look good on paper, but it's not the greatest idea. In that case, you want to make it safer and make it more efficient. And I don't think what we've done has, but now that I'm getting used to it, it's not necessarily a negative. I think the challenge is I go through there with my pickup truck and I can't make like a 270 to get up a different direction without going over the bump. And the problem with that is that also when I'm going to the intersection and I see people coming to it, I don't know where they're going to go. When it was a four-way stop, they had a turn signal on. Mm -hmm. So it, there's just more hesitant when I go in, is this person coming all the way around to go out or are they going to turn? 
And so I think it's more difficult. I think we'll all get used to it. I, I don't know the answer there. Was it better before? Maybe. Was it better now? I don't know. I just Yeah, I definitely – I'm one of those um, guys that signal out of a roundabout, not going in because we all know right. you're going right coming into the roundabout people. Um, but there's not, not an opportunity to even get my signal on in that smaller roundabout whatsoever. So you really don't know – what direction that car's going any longer. And I do that at the high school one too, up the high school road. I signal when I'm coming out because I want people to know that they can come in because mm-hmm. I'm leaving. But you're right. You can't do anything on that, that small one. But the intersection is really probably too small for the roundabout then. Maybe that should have been the idea at the beginning. Um, I know we had a initiative, I think four years ago, about infrastructure and making the, the city more walkable that did not pass. Um how do you feel the the improvements are going around the island? I, I actually, well, I just asked you and going to tell you how I feel. <laughs> it's always Nobody good cares. <laughs> I don't know. You I might have to represent you as on the council someday. I should care. Um, I enjoy the the widening of of Miller down by the Grand Forest. I thought that was a huge improvement. Um, Fletcher Bay seems to be getting worked on there and near Eagle Harbor. We definitely have false safety lines on the on the roads where. The white line is non-existent or actually crumbling on the edge there. So there's a lot of areas that aren't walkable. And then I saw housing developments go in and they didn't have to make sidewalks and such. And it's just like it's not really long-term planning. And that initiative, it seemed like it was going to take you know 10 years plus to get all that stuff done at like cost of a million dollars per block. And it just was poorly written. What kind of things would you like to see happen in the infrastructure here on Bainbridge Island? Well, my son goes for bike rides all the time, and I used to ride the bike more down there. So I think the improvements on Miller that you're talking about by the Grand Forest are great, the bike path. And that's really a great setup. I also uh, think we need to improve some of the parking that's down there. We've done that a little bit to let people park off the road to do the hikes and walks and stuff, but there really needs to be more. I mean, I walk my dog all the time, and there's many times both at the Grand Forest and up at Gasm Lake, there's not quite enough parking. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you have to take out some trees and do things to do that, but we really need to facilitate people being able to enjoy those parks and do the walks. I, I would put direct more funds at improving those roads and improving those things. I I think we have this big picture of things. Let's put climate action plan into progress here. We have a large plan for that, and it's a big time thing. And we should we should consider everything we do with what we're involved in our environment and our climate. But we need to fix take care of the things that are the smaller things that we can do now that are important. And uh, you know, walking and roads and safety are really important. I think I would direct more that way and keeping the big picture in mind at the same time. Well said. Um, Part of that kind of leans into affordable housing. There was a developer. What kind of lean is that? (laughs) Um, Well, the infrastructure on Madison. I'm just kidding. (laughs) uh, You know, when they were talking about the roundabout and stuff, there was a project by Mike Burns to put in improvements in a building that's pretty dilapidated. And to provide housing for the people that were in there and have a mixed-use retail space in a density-zoned area. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. But there was such a cry for affordable housing and infrastructure, I was surprised. And then recently, there was a hotel in a 
space prominent space down in Winslow that he sunk $850,000 in and seemed to go through all the right channels. And some people are calling it a bait and switch. I'm not as familiar about it as as some are, but that seems like two projects of development that also provided parking, infrastructure, sidewalks, contribution to affordable housing. Um, why do you think those things happened w- with this current council? Why they got deleted? Why they got Yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of there was a Suzuki property for a while talking about affordable housing there. That crashed. I didn't like how that idea was, you know, massively packed into 70 units or whatever. But the one on the one on Madison and the hotel seemed like those were legit and the city was helping him out and then the plug got pulled. Well, I don't go back to the whole process on that either, but I do have a couple of things to say on that. I don't think we should have anything in the city ordinances that allows a developer to buy more density. And there were some mm-hmm. funds paid to the city in that. I just think that doesn't make sense to me. It seems like it's over the counter. You know, we, it's not behind the scenes. You're not buying it, but it seems like you're just paying the county to go in the coffer to do with money that we're not very good at with the city. The city's not very good at utilizing that money towards housing or anything else. So I, I think that my position is that I don't think we should increase density anywhere. That that we, if we have set zoning and set guidelines, we stick with those. We don't bonus anybody into anything. I think I told you on the walk, I'm not for 87 units of anything on the island. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more that I see as a builder involved with that. Is there going to be 87 parking spots that go with that if it's full the whole time? Is there going to be parking spots for the cleaners, for the people that take care of it? Are we taking are we taking responsibility for doing laundry every day and all that system going into our sewage system and stuff? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the hotel shouldn't be there. It just seems like the size of that that project, because we allowed to, to buy in more density, the project just was over oversized. And we don't think of all the little pieces involved in it. I just realized we should be more conscious of everything down the line that adjusts with this, with our projects. And I know we want to force people into having more walk to where they want to go, to have a transit to where you want to go, to eliminate your cars, to do things so you have that. But it doesn't happen so far that I see in in our culture. You know, you have a two-bedroom condo, there's two cars there. You know, I don't care if it's in town or not. And that I know that's being a little bit hard and it's there's the exception there's a lot of people that walk and do things but we have to just accommodate that and if we're going to make sure we cover that part of it we probably have to downsize a little bit what we're doing with for density and for units well with that money going to the city and, and plans being approved and him being forthright saying that i believe what he has, had said the architectural plans to make it uh a, a lead or lead how do you say that yeah yeah, lead lead building um, with, you know, kind of a carbon neutral footprint. It's going to take time, more time than the permitting allowed. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was up front with that and they still okayed it and still took his money yeah. and then denied him as soon as that had expired. Did we refund him? That is the ultimate question. He should refund him. He should get his money back and, yep. and there should be some apology. I, You know, I... I've told everybody during my lifetime of construction, if you if you buy something and you do want to develop it and you within the rules, then that's what should happen. I, I'm not saying those rules are something I agree with and are right, but 
as long as you find those guidelines. And I don't know him, but if he was following the guidelines at that time and did the procedures that we had on, on the books, he should be able to complete his development. I go back and say we should never got to that far in the first place with that size. I looked at some of the renderings of that. It was a nice-looking hotel. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the structural building is nice, and design was really nice. I think from my point of view, if it was 42 units or something different, you know, that was more appropriate, that would have been something that I would have, you know, been more open to. But again, if he was within the guidelines that we had, then we just have to make sure those guidelines aren't there if that's not what we want. Do you think we need a hotel at all? I think we need a boutique hotel. That's pretty cool. If some friends come to visit, they could stay at. Okay. I, I don't know what size that should be. You know, I, I don't know that dimension that property. I've been there when there was the old um, barbecue the barbecue place down at the end. You could go there. Shout out know? to Greg Epstein. <laughs> and when there was a restaurant up front that burned down, I've been there. So I know that property could accommodate some nice commercial space. And uh, mm-hmm. to me, as long as the hotel had the size that allowed for the parking, just, just for that one time that it's maxed out and the people aren't walking off the ferry and they drive there. You know, high school graduation, everybody shows up from, you know, our family around. As long as it accommodates, like, full occupancy sometime and, and our systems can take care of it, that would be fine. Now, um, do you think the city should be managing low-income housing or affordable housing, or should that be something that falls on Housing Resources Bainbridge? I don't think the city should manage anything like that. I think the job of the city is service company. We, we serve the people. In the community, we don't manage it. We don't. No, give that, it, give it to Housing Resources Board. Let them manage it. They're specialized in that, and that's what they do. Okay, that brings me right into your hidden agenda and pet projects. Oh. <laughs> the, the couple of things that stick out to me about you right away is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't fact check a lot of stuff. Um, you're not taking donations for the campaign. Is that correct statement? Unless you call my own checkbook donation. (laughs) (laughs) You um, have an agenda which is basically just listening to the community members and the people. Um, I think you have some great ideas about environmental stewardship, uh, housing, infrastructure, things like that. But I, I think they're all equally important to you. And I feel like other candidates have agenda and goals it's fine to have goals but as as long as it's not just individualistic type goals what would you say some of your you know top priorities would be on city council well i think i said and tried to write in some of these situations where first off i'm not taking donations i've had three or four people say where can i send money how can i do that and i thought you know i I didn't really think this campaign needed that Mm -hmm. naive as i was all right until I actually went back and looked at some of the past campaigns. I'm talking about even way back when $40,000 were raised and there was action committees going on. I'm going, really, on Bainbridge? And even currently, you know, the candidates are raising several thousand. And, and I, I see it on advertising on the paper and everything else. So I understand that. But at first I thought, just get out and tell the people what you want to do and what you believe and they show that you're a good person and you care about your community. That's all that's needed. So I didn't go that route trying to solicit that. I, we got that pet project question from one of the papers and I thought, okay, it's important to me that we do everything that's needed for the community and not necessarily that here's what I want to work on climate action or I want to steward the forest or I want to have open, 
you know, inclusion, everything. It just all those are important to our community to kind of develop things. So it isn't that I don't have something I'm care and passionate about. It's just that I don't think I should direct my focus in that in that way when all the issues are really important. What's going on? I, I, I'm trying not to be a thing that sort of say I'm copying out of this, this answer, but you know, I think that things are important in our environment. You know, that's hugely important, and that's part of every single thing we do. From you talked about earlier, fixing the roads, you know, to where our housing developments go, to where our apartment development goes, to where our development for a hotel goes. Everything affects our environment. Everything affects our climate action plan. Everything is part of it. Mm-hmm. So we just have to put that package together and be concerned about all those issues. Yeah, I think we underestimate how much we pollute our environment here. Uh, we've had the sewage spills. We've had the Superfund with, at the Creosote site for 30 years. We have a ferry that just constantly dumping fuel into the bay. It is red tide all the time. I remember times where there was just such good crabbing and clamming here on on and around the island. And now you can't eat the stuff and the crabs are disappearing. And I was at TNC the other day and it was $50 a pound for crab. So in my mind, that make, means there's a scarcity. So we're definitely having an effect on, you know, shellfish for sure. And uh, like you were saying too, you know, if we build dense places, what are we doing with the cars? What are we, where's the parking garage? Where's the rainfall going? All, all those things become issues for the environment. Where do you think we're failing the environment the most on the island? Well, I think we're failing it in what we develop and what we allow to be developed. And I and I'm surprised that we have a planning commission that uh, allows some of the things that go on that happen. And you look at those boards, and we have architects, we have educated people, we have people that should know better, in my opinion. It's simple. I've been around construction for 40 years, and I'll just go back to the simplicity of it. We have a project when I first moved here, Northtown Woods has been built out. Those houses are 2,200, 2,400 square feet. Nice homes. Mm-hmm. And so Very desirable now, between schools. Yeah. And so now we decide that we need to do things like our little Winslow Grove project down off uh, Weaver and then in, in the project right in town on Duane Lane. Those houses are 35, 36, 3,700 square feet on similar size lots as Northtown Woods. And I just have the simple notion that if – if we built 2,400 square foot houses, there's a thousand less square foot of materials, of construction, of people on the project, of waste going to the landfills. And just the simple things like that help climate action and help our carbon footprint. So I'm not advocating that we – the world's growing. We're changing. Mm-hmm. Things are happening. But if we just bring it back to some of those simple ideas of things and steward it that way and then also – just be concerned about these density centers. It seems, it seems interesting that we're focused so much on Linwood Center and Rolling Bay and Island Center when we've already restricted from those areas from building. Those are all septic systems. And, mm-hmm. and, and if we push the density there, are we looking to build a new sewage treatment plant someplace? I mean, it's just surprising to me that we even focus on that. We don't have the facilities to even make those areas grow. And haven't we met the county's 10-year mandate for growth already? I think that's a state and county mandate. And from what I've read a little bit, and then actually a couple of other candidates pointed that out in some of their talks that we have met that uh, growth. growth. We are a zone so we can cover that. All right? mm-hmm. 
so I don't think we have to have these bonuses to force density and to add more units in the downtown. How would you go about making city council meetings shorter? Uh, I try to stay informed, but I it's hard when an hour it goes four to six hours. So I I watch a few of those meetings lately, and and there be a simple motion put up. Let's uh, add this to the agenda. And then there's a discussion that somebody wants to change that motion. Then somebody wants to change it again. Then somebody wants to change it back. And all of a sudden, they've lost track of what the motion was. And it's so convoluted and confused, nobody really knows what to do with it. And they have to go back and reevaluate. I think it just to make it clear. And there's many times when it seems like there's a council member who brings something up just to have their voice brought up. And I've seen this on – I'm not a – I haven't been on a lot of committees and organizations in my life, but the ones I have on, there's always people who just need to talk because they haven't been heard yet and they have something to say, and it's almost made up to talk that way. I just think we have to just get the process done and be quicker with it. Yeah, part of this podcast is me setting aside an hour or two to listen to somebody else because I used to have that same problem, wanted to hear my voice and never shut up. I always be looking to formulate my reply and not really hearing or listening to the person who's talking to me. By the way, what'd you say? No. <laughs> um, when you've gone out, have you had any um, super good experiences talking about your campaign with any groups or, or individuals? And what did that look like? Well, I mentioned to you earlier today before we got online on, oh, yeah. on the phone here that um, not not very experienced with the Zoom situation. So I'll let you know the League of Women Voters, great organization, happy they put us all together. But here I am on the screen for the first time with a little bleeping you know, sign that says 10 seconds left and you're trying to get an answer in there. Uh, I, I realized that I wasn't really prepared for screen time and that takes some practice. So I've had some – that's been difficult experiences. I, I, I mentioned to you earlier I had uh, with the Bainbridge Black Leaders and that was this – all of a sudden it changed the whole process because it was a great experience where I come in, everybody introduces themselves, tells me a little about their kid or their dog – and it felt like you were just joining them for a conversation in their home. That was a nice experience. I've had a – I put out a little flyer. I think I told you and I'll tell the you know, listeners that I was trying not to touch mail's boxes, was attaching them to, to the posts, not the box, trying to be respectful. And I had one lady call me from um, an area on Bainbridge that said, your flyers were so tacky, I'm not going to vote for you. And I called her back and talked to her. And said, well, you know, I drew that flyer myself and I paid for it in my own pocket and I walked around your neighborhood and I was really careful. I didn't want to go to your door. I put them on your mailbox, you know, but I put them on the post. She said, well, it wasn't really a really flyer. It's just the tacky little blue flags that were hanging around my mailbox. And I, I realized when I just finished that area that where she was, she had one of the mailboxes, with like eight mailboxes, and I attacked them around the roof part, you know, and I go – I. I get it. There's a smiling gray face flapping in the wind, and it was a little tacky. I'll be more concerned. So I've had, I've had people give comments that way. Um, most of my comments about uh, running from my friends are – I won't use the explicative, but it's like, what the heck are you doing? You know, Are you crazy? You want to be involved in that? And I have to kind of reassure them that, you know, I've, this isn't just like I'm jumping into it. I've thought about this for a long time, and this happens to be the right time with family and kids being grown and easing back on business to have the time to do this. So those are some of my experiences. Yeah, and and people that have a sense of normalcy and lack um, 
this egotistical agenda or whatever are, are really needed on council. I, th- I think he'd be a great addition. Um, do you have plans to meet with the senior center soon? No, that would be great. But am I gonna? Is it gonna make any difference now in the third? Well, I, I, yeah, I don't. You got, I, here's you got the, a couple here, of weeks, but here's the hardest part. I think that uh, you know, I not the hardest part, but one difficult. I didn't realize that. I thought you could just. I thought you could sign up and just. Oh, I'm going to run for the North Ward, and there's two positions, and you just run and see what happens. I didn't realize there was a primary, so now I get the primary. And there's four in mind, so you get just if you get a couple of months to be able to jump in there and get known. Um, here's a curious thing. I just interesting more than curious. I just checked out everybody else's website and information stuff. You know, over a course of time, and I told my family and my daughter yesterday. I said, "Look, I looked on Ron's and Lisa's and Joe's, and they've got more people who've given them donations and are part of their campaign than I even know on the island." <laughs> so, I, you know, it's going to be extra hard for me to get those votes, you know, so we'll just have to see how it goes. Well, hopefully this is a, a step in the right direction, getting you known by more people. Yeah. Um, but it would be fun to meet at the senior center. I just think that uh, I think that I mentioned this to the Housing Resource Board and to um, the League of Women Voters when they first approached the email out. I said, can we do this in person? And have a process where we all sit down and talk more than being on zoom. And it, we wasn't quite timing yet with COVID being off to have that happen. But I, I actually thought when I started this process, what my idea was, was to contact a rotary and the senior system and just go sit down and say, you know, what I need to do is hear from you. It isn't that I need to be here and tell you what I think. I need to know what you feel about the island and what cares. And that's where I started to put down, listen to the you know, voice on the island, because it's about, hearing what people from organizations want and care about and what's important to them more than me walking in and telling you what I think. Okay, let, let me ask you this. What have you heard are the issues that if you're on council, you'll, you should address? Well, we have a big issue with the police department and that building. What's going to go on with that? That's going to be a really important issue that comes up. And, and I mentioned in one of my little things that I wrote that I, it may be taken care of before I can get, you know, I have a chance to get there in the next few months. We have, um, we have a bunch of money we got from the federal government that uh, I'd like, if I have a few minutes, I'd like to go into that. Story. Yeah, please. This, this really interested me. So I watched that meeting where we were getting the $7 million in the first three and a half coming to us. And I listened to the finance director lay out these four categories for where the money was supposed to be applied and what it was coming for. And it was really clear it's all about COVID relief money mostly, but all the areas are gray and they can be massaged to make it fit somehow. And then I listened to the city manager say, well, I'd like to advise the county that this should be what if money. We should use this for what if we didn't have this money, we could never do these projects. And this is the new city manager? New city manager. And then he also says, we didn't have to qualify for this money. There's no need to be shown. There was no, it's not a grant money. It's just given to us. And the reason we got it is because we're under 50,000 in population. We get this chunk of money. And I'm thinking, do we really need it? And then I'm wondering, well, the council is going to talk about it because the push is to decide right away. And I thought, no discussion. They just voted to take it. And I'm thinking, do we really need it? You know, I, I, how, how has Bainbridge been affected by COVID? Yes. I, I would... I would say small business. Like, for example, like I used earlier, Blue Canary with the infrastructure and then the pandemic going, 
their business really dropped off to the extent where they shut down an extra day. So if there's COVID relief money, it, it should go to small local businesses that didn't necessarily get relief from the city during the pandemic. And that would be a great approach, but I don't think there's anything that I that I heard, and I'm you know very minor with this, that would allow much of that to happen, or to allow that think the city council is going to direct that money back to that position. And I totally understand what you're talking about, Blue Canary, because I'm a small independent businessman, and I had months and months and months without projects work. I couldn't go into somebody's home, right, and be in, in their kitchen, remodel their kitchen, do that work. The great thing that I want to say about it is that. Look at us downtown today. We are making a comeback. You know, people are coming off the ferry. They're walking around for those businesses. Things are happening again. All of us are back at work. Even the simple places like the market and the paint store are asking for people to be hired for, to get back to work. So we're recovering from there. And well, I, I want to push pause on it real quick because you're talking about the Winslow Corridor and it's summer and it's tur- tourist season. There's a lot of small businesses that are up away from the ferry and downtown Winslow right. too that that suffered through this pandemic. Anyway, go on. No, no, I totally agree with that. I totally understand. I mean, that, yeah. we're sitting in in Studio 15 here, and I have not been in here since March 15th, uh, 2020. So it definitely affected me. I, I had to shut down. Um, I had to do the little zoom with the flashing numbers in the in the screen that nobody likes. But then it became standard with on CNN and ESPN and everywhere that we're just going to zoom. Well, here I would say to that, that we should get the small business community, you, the people on the North End, anywhere else, is in Chamber of Commerce, how they're, and they should really lobby, if that's the right word to use, city council in, because this what if money is going to not go there. All right. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some small little $15,000 grants or 10000 grants here, but it's not really going to be involved in that. In and opinion. it can't just be for nonprofit businesses either. It's got to be for all small businesses. There's like 600 nonprofits on this island, and they have the ability to get grant money and donations and stuff. If you're just a straight-up business and you change tires or something like that, that's what you do. So it's each one has to be treated um, – Equally, I think, for sure. Well, here's the thing that I know from being in business for 40 years. You're in business and you're successful because you can adapt and you can work and find ways to make it work. And hopefully all the businesses you're talking about and the ones that aren't just in the downtown Winslow have found a way to kind of adapt and get through it. And now we're recovering, you know. And I don't know if pushing money at somebody is the right way to say, okay, keep recovering. I don't know. Yeah, but – there was a a good year where we didn't have recovery money on a consistent basis for sure. I just I just feel like if it's a what if fund, you know, what's been worse than a pandemic in our lifetime? You know, I can't really think of anything. Yeah, you know, I got beat up when I was sixth sixth grader by Jeff Decker. I'm still looking for you, buddy. Um, that was pretty bad, but <laughs> other than that, pandemic has hit my life. Extremely hard, right? So I don't see anything other than another pandemic coming down the road for that what if money. Yep. Yeah. What what if there's an earthquake? Well, I see an ocean. I'm, it's dust. Well, I would just say they gave it to the wrong people then because I don't think the city knows how to utilize it. So as a citizen, how do you, how do you see the lobbying process going? 
you know, you just knock on the door, put your hand out, and here's my keep what knocking if, on the door. Here's my what if money. All right, I would say to find a way to give it all away. That's what I would do. I would say, what if we decided that Helpline House has a better way of helping the people that need to be helped? Here's a hundred grand. What if we decided that Housing Resources Board had a better way of getting people into houses? Here's five hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. What if we decided that the land trust was better at storing our land and protecting our watersheds and and working for aquifers, and we gave them five hundred thousand? What if we gave it to one called us all and we gave them five? What if we found a way to give all that money away to organizations that are better than we are? What if to help small businesses? Was a five hundred thousand dollar donation to Rotary or to the Chamber of Commerce, but just give it away because Bainbridge's city budget, from my reading and I, and there's a huge budget went down about nine percent, and then we got some funds back, so there's like a three or five percent loss of revenues, and we now have all kinds of homes that come on the market at one point five million new homes. Well, like those Grove houses you're talking about. They're- they're already reselling now because they're going for $2 million. My point with that is we put these new properties on that are going for higher values. They're all new tax bases, and all of us are getting new tax assessments in our, in our mail. All right? Mm-hmm. All of us going to – the city's going to be just fine. That city's going to be no problem with the money they have and, and recovering. And if we're going to take that money for what-if projects, it should go back to the people in our community. You say we have 600 nonprofits, then we should give them all a piece of it. You said the A word, and I want to get back to that aquifer, one of my favorite subjects on this island. Um, Schools. You know, we're always short, paying the teachers a a livable wage. There's a -a click-a-thon every year. There's a donation. You have to pay extra 400 bucks or whatever to play sports. Um, There's less transportation. How do we solve that? I know this is not really a city council problem, but if we have what if money, how do we channel that into the school system? And does the school system need to be broken and rewritten to some extent? <laughs> There's a big question. <laughs> uh, because I don't want my school to be underfunded every single year. My teacher's not getting paid what they deserve. And then a big hand of give me more money three times a year or whatever. Well, I don't think you can go there because we're not part of the school district. I agree with you. But in this like funding, I'm sure we can decide in the COVID money that our schools didn't have the facilities they needed and our teachers didn't get what they needed. And I, I don't think you can give them a raise, but you could certainly say, how many teachers are on the island from elementary school up? 100, 150? You could just say, here's $1,000 each or here's $2,000 to the teacher to utilize in the classroom any way they want. I mean, it could come out of that money. So why do you think they can't get a raise or shouldn't get a raise? I don't think they should, and I don't think the city council can do anything about that raise. Mm. I I totally agree with you. I told you earlier today my wife was a couple years as a teacher, and she said it was the hardest job she ever did in her life. And it's it is it takes a huge dedication to be a teacher. And I do think that they're under you know underpaid for what we ask yeah. for their value. But I don't I don't know how you change that with the city council. You know, I mean, the school board and the city council are so different um, and so separate. Mm-hmm. How do you think city council is doing in their approach to? Uh, I said I'd go back to aquifers. Um, Equality for all and race equity network and projects like that. 
Yes, I thought we were just going to have a conversation on all the tough questions thrown at me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, so we'll just go to aquifers. <laughs> no, we, no, we could go to those things. I, and I'll tell you, I, I, I talked to the Bainbridge Bike Leaders Network, and I, I'm honest. You know, I go, I'm one of the 90%, all right? So the important thing for me here is not to talk to you, is for me to listen to you and see what you have to say. That's brilliant. You know, I, I, yes, maybe I'm naive of the whole situation. I don't want to throw out words and say, this is what we should do and we shouldn't be inclusive. We should do this. I just want to hear what's needed and then get to work on it. Mm-hmm. All right. To aquifers. <laughs> do we, do we have an aquifer system that can stand up to the usage of all these islanders? Do you feel, second part of that question is, do you feel the critical area ordinance was written with Truthful and uh, honest aquifer science. Um, I've always liked geology, so I, I, in the past, before this, I took some looks at geological surveys and stuff that when they did our aquifers. And same question that was being asked when I moved here, like where hey, where the heck's the water coming from? And so I just kind of followed them that. So we have a pretty good mapping of that, and I think there's some wells that are being monitored on a regular basis to see what's going on with our water. And we know that it's recharged mostly by the water that percolates through the ground on slower times of saturation when there's a runoff. So we have to protect those areas. We have to protect more of every part of it, uh, which to me goes back to even the smaller houses on lots where somebody can put in a little bit of lawn around them and a little bit of grass. So some of that water goes back into, into the system a little bit. It's not much, but it's minor. So I haven't read the critical areas, you know, report or wherever it is. I just think that we have to protect those areas and it would be something to be evaluated and take a look at. But yes, we have to keep we have to keep construction away from it. We have to keep areas that are just natural and let and let the water flow back. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, anything you want to add to this? Um, just on the aquifer. So you you're you're a dog walker. I'm a dog walker on the outside. You walk around some of our trails on and Gasm Lake and also at the Grand Forest. There's some old ponds there. Mm-hmm. Some old ponds that you can see where the water naturally drains down to and is part of it's associated. Those are the kind of things we need to keep those areas protected. Now, you know, they're holding water, so they're not necessarily things that percolate in the ground very fast, but it's like a holding area that allows water to kind of come in and come out. And those are the watersheds we really have to protect. And we have, you know, we have the land trust and other organizations that are buying line to do that. And mm-hmm. we just have to facilitate them doing just be more responsible. And there seems to be a watershed with every new development too. Yeah. It's kind of like you cut a tree, you plant three. And so. and I, I don't think my little small reading understanding, I don't think we have an idea of what's what we really can pull out of the ground. And I don't think we ever will. I mean, it's it's limited and it's not I would guess it's not recharging as fast as we're taking it out. So there's gonna be some limitation there as to what we can take out of this you know, ground and utilize on the island. So we have to be conscious of it. Water, water's precious and important. And we have to kind of remember yeah. that every time we flush our toilet or drink, drink a glass. Yeah. And some of those toilets got some really brown water, uh, <laughs> depending on where you live in this island. Uh, it's just definitely not the best water situation. I know we recently started filtering all our water and we didn't have the problem of the brown water, but you, know, you see the Facebook groups like, well, I just moved here. Should my bath water be brown? <laughs> and uh, I'm glad we're not in that situation, but ours is kind of dirty as well. Um, any other uh, 
idea, big ideas that you have or things that you want to touch on before we get out of here? No, I've um, kind of read everything that Reese's written. I've kind of been involved in, you know, some of these online things, the Zoom conference. I think the great thing is we all have different ways, but there's four people who care about our environment. There's four people who really kind of want to be conscious of that in everything we do. So that's a good thing. It makes me feel better. I think I told you a couple of Zoom things I've been on. I feel better about some of the people on the island. Everybody cares here, you know. We, that's why we have involvement in committees and people really working to, to take care of things. It's why you have your podcast here. You care about where you live. It's a, we have a great place to, that happens and doing. We just have to use that resource to be part of what we're doing too as a council and as a city. Awesome. Dennis Miller, North Ward City Council candidate. Thank you for your time. I wish you all the best. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you. And I'm looking forward to walking in the Grand Forest with you with some dogs here soon. Sounds good, Tim. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind.